Okay, so uh, welcome everyone. Let me just uh, make sure that uh, everyone can uh, see me. Um, welcome everyone. This is uh, Drisha's Tisha B'Av program. Uh, it's the third class of the day and it will be followed by one more class at 4 p.m. So I hope that all of you will uh, join. It will be a separate link uh, and I hope that everyone is planning to join that last class as well at 4 p.m. Uh, we encourage everyone to turn on their video if they're able to. It's really nice to feel like we are together, uh, just like in a pre-pandemic class, if possible at all. Um, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to write them here uh, in the chat on Zoom, or you can write them as a comment on Facebook if you are watching us uh, live. In this class, we will examine uh, the literary art artistry of the Book of the Eicha, in an attempt to discover its magnificent portrayal of a has profound and sophisticated theology. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Yael Zeigler. Um, I, uh, I hope that I'm pronouncing uh, the name right. Uh, Dr. Zeigler, are you here and can maybe uh, uh, just let me know if I'm pronouncing your name correctly? I just need yeah, you I'm a co-host. It actually Ziegler, but my maiden name is Zeiger, so I'm okay with the mix up. Okay, uh, how would you prefer it, Ziegler? No, it's Ziegler. Just okay, kidding. perfect. Okay. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Yael Ziegler. Uh, uh, Dr. Ziegler is the assistant professor in Tanakh at Erzog College and Matan. As of September 2021, Dr. Ziegler will assume the position of Rosh Batei Midrash and academic director of Matan. She received her BA from Stern College and an MA and PhD at Bar Ilan University. Dr. Ziegler has lectured widely on various Tanakh topics in Israel, the United States, Canada, South Africa, Australia, and Europe as well. Dr. Ziegler is the author of Promises to Keep, The Oath in Biblical Narrative and Ruth, From Alienation to Monarchy, which has been translated into Hebrew. Her book, Lamentations, Faith in a Turbulent World, was released in June 2021. She's currently working on a book on Exodus. With that, I'll turn this to you, Dr. Ziegler. Okay, great. Thank you very much. I'm going to pull up my PowerPoint and then we can begin. Okay. okay. Just, uh, and I'll spotlight you in just a moment. Okay, great. Okay. Great. I'll say good evening to everyone, but it's probably good afternoon to most of you. Uh, I'm here in Israel, so we are actually post-fast, um, but I understand that probably most of you are still in the middle of Tisha B'Av. And, uh, you know, this is, of course, a very appropriate time to be thinking about Megillat Echa. Uh, what I'm interested in in today's class in terms of Megillat Echa is trying to understand some of the theological reflections in the book. Now, actually, to be, you know, quite, um, to be quite frank about the Megillah, I think the first thing that we have to note is that this is not a book of theological reflection. There are some theological reflections in the book, but this is not a book like the book of Eov, it's not the book of Job, it's not the book of Kohelet, it's not the book of Ecclesiastes, right? This is not a book that is tackling directly some of the uh, predominant theological questions that arise as a result of the events that the Megillah is commemorating. Of course, we are commemorating some really cataclysmic events, right? These are catastrophic events 
for the people of Israel. The book of Echa is of course commemorating the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BCE. Along with that, of course, we have the fall and the destruction of the temple of the Beit HaMikdash, the exile of the inhabitants of Yerushalayim, and pretty much the collapse of the Judean empire to, to a large degree. So these are really cataclysmic events. I mean, they really kind of bring all of the dreams and aspirations of the Jewish people during the period of the Tanakh, they bring them to a crashing halt, right? I mean, that's pretty much what we're commemorating here in the book. And it really is a catastrophic book. And therefore, I think one of the questions that we should expect the book to be dealing with is the question of God, right? How do we contend with God within this sort of context? How does the book regard God's role within this context. So therefore, I mean, you know, it's not, I wouldn't say it's terribly surprising that we don't really have a, a systematic uh, attempt to tackle theology because the book itself is not presenting itself as a book of theology. It's a book of suffering. It's a book of pain. It's a book of grief. It's a book that tells the story of the famine, the destruction, the exile, and yet, of course, it's a book in Tanakh, and therefore we would expect and we would be right to expect there to be some kind of grappling with theology. And there is, there is. Some, some of it is subtle, some of it is less subtle, but that's what I want to talk about with you today. The subtle attempt to grapple with theology, I think, is embedded in the literary artistry of the book. And when I talk about the literary artistry of the book, I am particularly, at least in, in this context, uh, alluding to the structure of the book, okay? The book of Echan, I want to start out by talking about that, but then I want to focus our attention on one particular section of the book. We'll get to that in a few minutes. When we talk about the overall structure of the Book of Lamentations, right, we're talking about a book that has five chapters, okay? Five chapters, and I want to suggest that the book is built in a circular or what we tend to call a chiastic structure. Okay, for those of you who are not familiar yet with chiastic structures, a chiastic structure is a structure which appears a lot in Tanakh. It's a structure which is basically A, B, C, C, B, A. In order, to, um, in order to clarify this structure, in order to show you what I consider to be the best example of this structure, I'm going to bring for you on the screen a pasuk, a verse, from Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, Bereshit, Perek Tet, Pasuk Vav, Shofech, Dam, Ha'adam, Ba'adam, Demo, Yishafech. Here we have the advantage of PowerPoints. We can color coordinate this and make it very clear, right? A, B, C, C, B, A. It doesn't even exactly matter <clears throat> what this verse means for the moment. What I want you to understand is that this Pasuk shows us that chiastic structures exist in the Tanakh because this book, this uh, uh, verse is written in a very tight chiastic structure. Now, the purpose of this verse and the reason that this verse is used, it uses a chiastic structure is because the idea of this pasuk is sin and punishment. You spill the blood of man, 
your blood will be spilled. You do A, you will get A. You do B, you will get B. You do C, you will get C. And not exactly the meaning of the pasuk, but that's the meaning of the structure. Now, building on that, I want to suggest that the book of Echa is broadly structured as a chiastic structure, but because it has a middle section, it has a middle chapter that has no parallel chapter, we call this a concentric structure, right? It's a concentric structure because all of the chapters revolve around the middle chapter. Chapters one and chapters five, these are parallel chapters and they create a kind of a ring around the book. Chapters two and chapters four and chapter four, these are very similar chapters and therefore they create an inner ring. And all of these chapters revolve around the chapter that is at the heart of the book and that is chapter three. Okay, so first of all, I have to do two things now. First of all, I have to provide evidence that what I'm saying is really correct, that chapter one and chapter five are in fact similar chapters. What do I mean by similar chapters? I have to show you that chapters two and four are in fact similar chapters. And then of course, we have to do the most important thing of all and explain what is the uniqueness of chapter three, which is the chapter that seems to be the focal point of the entire book. Okay, I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna talk about this too long because I really wanna get to chapter three, which is going to be the focal point of our attempt to try to discern the theology in the book. But what I want to begin by showing you is that chapters one and five are similar chapters in terms of their content, in terms of their tone, most important of all, perhaps, in terms of their linguistic affinity. Okay, what, when I say most important of all, I mean to say that when the Tanakh wants to draw our attention to similarities between biblical passages, to similarities between biblical chapters, the way that it does it is by drawing our attention to linguistic similarities. That's the way that the Tanakh draws our attention to similarities between different biblical passages. So chapters one and five are very similar chapters, okay? These are the chapters that, that, that represent the periphery of the book. And the first way that I wanna show you that these are in fact similar chapters is by drawing your attention to what I think is a truly remarkable uh, set of linguistic similarities. Now we're not going to go through all of this. I'm just going to show you this on screen so that you can get a, a little bit of a sense of how much language um, is, is how many different, you know, phrases and words are unique to chapters one and five. Okay. So for example, the word ke'almana, like a widow appears only in these two chapters. The phrase dave lev, right? My heart is miserable. Libi davai appears in only these two chapters, etc., etc. Right, we're not going to go through every example. I brought for you this, what I think is a very impressive 
array of linguistic parallels, just to make the point that I don't think this is coincidental, right? The Tanakh is drawing our attention to the similarities between chapter one and chapter five. To what end? To what end? What is the purpose of drawing our attention to these similarities? So before I get to the purpose, I wanna just show you that these two chapters are very similar in terms of their tone as well, in terms of their content. These chapters are not chapters that describe the destruction of the city. These are quiet chapters, chapters that describe the loneliness in the city, that describe the desolation, the emptiness in the city. They describe a city which has been emptied of her inhabitants. They describe lots and lots of quiet tears. One of the predominant images in these chapters, as I mentioned before, are the widows, right? The chapter itself is described as a, or I'm sorry, the city itself is described as a widowed city, right? The city is personified and described as a widow. And so these are very, very similar chapters. We're going to explain why in just a moment. But first I wanna show you that chapters two and four also are very similar chapters and they contain some kind of inner ring, okay? What do I mean by that? Well, look at this uh, um, chart that I brought for you here. Again, I, I, I apologize if, it's, if it gives you a little bit of a headache because there really is a lot going on here, but I wanted to show you how many different examples of, uh, of, of shared language and even uniquely shared language exists between these two chapters. These are the only two chapters that contain the phrase berosh kol chutzot on every street corner. These are the only two chapters that contain the phrase shever bat ami. Oh, that's not true. I think that it might appear also in chapter three, but okay, the brokenness of my people. These are the only two chapters that describe the uh, the prophets, the false prophets in the city. These are two chapters which are very similar linguistically. And one of the reasons that they're very similar linguistically is because they describe a very similar situation, a situation of destruction. These are loud chapters. These are angry chapters. These chapters describe the, the, the destruction of the city, the fire in the city, the famine in the city, and particularly the way that the famine affects the children. In these two chapters, we have children who are dying on every street corner in Jerusalem. And this is a very different type of chapter. The ones who are featured in chapters two and four are the leaders, the leaders who have failed their people, the kings, the priests, the prophets, the death of the children. This is what draws chapter two and four together in the book of Echa. Okay, so I think I've sort of briefly tried to establish that chapters one and five create a kind of peripheral circle around the book and chapters two and four contain an inner circle. 
but to what end? What is the purpose of creating these similar chapters in this chiastic structure in the book? So what I wanna suggest is, is that these chapters share something very fundamental, which is much more than just language, tone, and content, and that is theology. These chapters represent two very different theological approaches in the book. And when I say theological approaches, what I mean specifically here is how they address the question of God, of God's role in this story. Of course, as we mentioned before, this is a catastrophic event. Am Yisrael has to be asking themselves the question, what is God's role in the story? Well, when you look at chapters one and five, the theology of the chapter, or at least the chapter kind of uh, winds its way towards a very specific theology in which God is just. It takes a while to get there in both of these chapters, but chapter one concludes by saying, Tzadik hu Hashem ki fihu mariti. God is just for I have rebelled against him. Within this context, what we have here in, at the periphery of the book is a very strong statement that we have simple, pure faith in God's justness. Maro Mariti, I have surely rebelled. And of course, chapter five winds up concluding, Oinalanu ki chatanu. Woe to us, for we have sinned. The idea of this theology is not necessarily to browbeat ourselves as a nation for having sinned, but to make the absolute statement of trust in God. In a, a trust in a world that makes sense. Trust in a world in which God is choreographing events, in which God is directing events in a way that will wind up being filled with divine justice, with a divine plan. That's what we have at the periphery of the book. Now, I think that this is very important. In other words, without this kind of theology, without this kind of uh, buffer, I think that we wind up living in a world which feels absurd, which feels meaningless, which feels lacking any sort of uh, meaning, any sort of divine plan. And yet, when you look at the theology of chapters two and four, these are very different types of chapters. Don't forget, and I mentioned it before, the predominant image in these chapters is that of children who are dying on every street corner. Within that context, it is impossible to state, Sadiku Hashem, Kifihu Mariti, God is just, for I have sinned against him. Within this context, what we see is a very different picture. We see a picture of what we call Sadiq Varalo, righteous people who suffer, right? Innocent people who suffer. This is what is described both in chapter two and in chapter four in Echa. We have a very different portrayal of God. God in chapter two of Echa is portrayed as an adversary, 
as an enemy of his own people. And there are some very harsh proclamations that are flung against God in chapter two, haragta biyom apecha, you killed on the day of your anger, God, tavachta lo chamalta, you slaughtered, you did not pity. And so what we have here really is an entirely different approach to God. And, and what I want to suggest is, is that when we look at these parallel circles in the, of the book of, of Echa, that make up the book of Echa, what we see is the dialectic of the religious person's existence. On the one hand, he deeply believes with pure and simple faith that God has a just plan for the world. On the other hand, he looks around him and in all honesty and with his great um, uh, sense of, 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 you know, sort of candid relationship with God, he sees a world that makes no sense and he flings this world at God. And this is the great balance. This is the great dialectic of the religious person's existence. Okay. I think there's something really magnificent about this structure. I think that the structure teaches us that on the one hand, we are not meant to rely on kind of facile pet answers, but rather we're meant to express the truth of our existence. On the other hand, to live without a simple faith in God's justness is to live in a world which is absurd, which is too difficult to exist in. And so we keep these two poles in balance. Okay, so that's what I wanted to say about the kind of broad overall structure of the book. I see that a few of you have sent uh, some questions. I'll just mention uh, for now that I'm going to take questions at the end of the class. I'll, I'll try to address all questions and, and comments at that point as well. I'll just mention also that I am after the fast here in Israel. And so I am going to drink. I don't want anyone to think that I'm in the middle of the fast day, but it's been a, a, a lot of hours without drinking. So if you'll just give me a moment, I'm going to uh, take a drink of water. I hope that that was not uh, Loeg Larash. I'm sorry for those people who are still in the middle of the fast, but uh, you know it's it's been a really hot day here in Israel. Okay, um, so what I want to do at this point now is to turn my attention to that, or to turn all of our attention to that middle chapter, chapter three. And I want to begin by noting that chapter three is um, not just the central chapter of the book, it's also immediately uh, discernible that this is a very different chapter than the other chapters in the book. When I say it's immediately discernible, I mean simply from the techniques that are used in order to uh, compose this chapter. We know that the first four chapters of the Book of Lamentations are uh, composed using an alphabetic acrostic, right? The first pasuk starts with Aleph, the second verse starts with Bet, the third verse starts with Gimel, etc. That's an alphabetic acrostic. 
What do we have in chapter three? We have a very rare phenomenon. It only appears twice in the entire Bible. And that is an acrostic that appears more than once. We have it once in the book of Psalms. In chapter 119, we have an eightfold acrostic. Well, in chapter three of the book of Echa, we have a threefold acrostic. Aleph, 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 as you see here, right? The first three verses start with Aleph. The next three verses will start with Bet. The next three with Gimel, etc., etc. So that already draws our attention to the, uh, the 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 sense that this middle chapter is special. It's different. It's being composed in order to draw our attention to its uniqueness. A second point that I think we immediately recognize when we see chapter three, especially in light of what we've already seen in the first two chapters of the book of Echa, and that is that the word that opens this chapter is not the word Echa, right? The word Echa, which is a, a word of lament, it opens chapter one, it opens chapter two, it will open chapter four, but it does not open chapter three. Chapter three opens with the word ani, ani hagever, I am the man. Now, you know, I think that this immediately uh, already gives us a sense that this book is, that this chapter is really different. It also focuses our attention on a different sort of speaker. We have never had the individual human before. All that we've had so far is Jerusalem speaking, the objective narrator speaking. Sometimes Jerusalem speaks as an I, but she, of course, represents, the city represents the collective entity of the nation. So this is the first time in the book that we've really had this individual who is speaking as an Ani, right? Who is this individual Ani? Well, there's a, a debate about it among the different um, biblical commentators. Uh, famously, everything that Rashi says is, is famous, right? So, so famously, Rashi says that this Gever is Yirmiyahu, right? Is Jeremiah. And of course, we have a long-standing tradition that Yirmiyahu wrote the book of Echa. And so when suddenly this individual speaker enters the picture to tell his own individual story of suffering, it is very natural, I think, that the different uh, biblical commentators turn to Yirmiyahu and say, this must be Yirmiyahu telling the story of his own life. And of course, Yirmiyahu's life was filled with suffering. He tells a tremendous amount of his suffering in the book of Jeremiah, in the book of his prophecies. He has about seven autobiographical passages where he tells of how difficult it was to be a prophet during this period, during this time when the people were very rebellious and the Babylonians were encroaching upon the city. And so he does in fact have a miserable life. And when we read through chapter three, we see that this Gever, this man is describing how they throw him into a pit. Well, Jeremiah was also set, thrown into a pit. 
and he describes how he is struck on the cheek. Jeremiah also receives some very nasty blows. And perhaps in the most poignant uh, uh, piece of evidence, in Perak Gimel, in Pasuk Yudalid, in verse 14, this Gever says, Hayiti schok lecholami niginatam kol hayom. I was a laughingstock for my people. I was their plaything all the day. And it echoes something that Yirmiyahu himself said in chapter 20, verse 7. Hayiti schok lechot. I was a laughingstock all the day. Everybody laughs at me. Everybody mocks me. And so there is a certain amount of evidence for uh, Rashi's position that the Gever, who is telling the story of the suffering in his personal life, is in fact Yirmiyahu Hanavi. And yet, and yet. Ibn Ezra offers a different approach, right? Ibn Ezra cites Rashi's approach, but then he concludes by saying, oh, or yomar kol echad mi Yisrael. It could be that this chapter is not a chapter telling the story of Yirmiyahu's individual life because Yirmiyahu never appears in the chapter. The chapter doesn't open with the words, Ani Yirmiyahu Hagever, I am Yirmiyahu, the man. The chapter opens with the words of an anonymous, unnamed sufferer. And therefore, Ibn Ezra suggests this is every man, this is any person, this is anyone who has ever suffered. It is not an individual person, it is not a specific person but rather it is the story of the way in which people's experience of suffering unfolds within the context of their relationship with God. If in fact, this is the way that we should be reading this chapter, it doesn't mean that Yirmiyahu didn't compose the chapter. It doesn't mean that Yirmiyahu didn't draw from events in his own life. In order, to, uh, in order to construct this chapter, all it means is, is that we are meant to be reading this chapter universally. This, this, of course, makes it a very, very, very useful and important chapter in the Tanakh. Because, of course, every person suffers. This is the experience of human beings. Human beings experience loss. Human beings experience grief on an individual level, certainly, oftentimes on a national level as well. This past year and a half have seen, has seen us suffering on a global level, right? Everybody, the whole world has experienced some kind of suffering together. And this chapter teaches us how to contend with suffering, how to grapple with suffering within the context of our religious experience. I think this is a really important chapter, not just in the book of Echa, not just in the way that it's centrally featured in the book as the central chapter, but 
in all of Tanakh, I think it's really one of the particularly uh, useful and important chapters in the book, in the, it, yeah, in the entire, not just in the book, but in the entire corpus of the Tanakh. So let's look at this chapter. Let's see if we can understand a little bit more deeply what this chapter is about. I will say one, uh, one point as a preliminary point, and that is that not only is this chapter different in terms of its speaker, in terms of its initial word, in terms of its uh, triple alphabetic acrostic structure, it's also different in terms, in terms of its content, right? It's not like the other chapters. It doesn't mention the temple. It doesn't mention Jerusalem. It doesn't mention the siege. It doesn't mention the priests. It doesn't mention starvation. It doesn't mention national tragedy. Instead, it focuses, as I said before, on the experience of this one person. And it also contains, quite strikingly, the only place in the book that we have a sustained attempt to grapple systematically with theology. Okay. So what are we looking here in this uh, chapter? Part one of the chapter is a very long chapter, of course, at least in terms of the amount of verses, because it's a triple acrostic. So it's not 22 verses, it's 66 verses. We won't be reading them all today, but we'll be trying to get a kind of a schematic overview of this chapter. In the first section of the chapter, the Gever, this individual describes his suffering. In the second section of the chapter, the individual describes his theological reflections. In the third part of the chapter, the Gever goes back to describe his suffering. Okay, so again, what we have is a kind of a circular um, uh, um, uh, structure here, right, where the suffering surrounds the central pole, the central axis of the chapter where we have theological reflections. I'll make it a little bit more simple, okay? What the theological reflections are the central section of the central chapter in the book. So it's really right there at the center, right? It almost mirrors the human experience. Human beings may be surrounded by suffering but what they find deep inside of themselves is the ability to engage in deep introspection, in deep theological reflection. That's what we find at the center of the book of Echa. Okay, let's see how this Gever describes his, um, his suffering. And Again, what I want to suggest is, is that the Gever is not really describing a specific um, details of his own journey. Rather, he's trying to reflect for us his state of mind, how he feels about himself, how he feels about God, how he feels about the world as a result of his very difficult suffering. I want to begin by uh, noting that the word ani, is a very sort of, um, it's, it's, it's a, it has a lot of impact, this word, right? The, the, the story begins by allowing the Gever to focus inward. I 
That's how we start the story of his suffering. And this kind of focus on the eye, this goes on and on throughout his description. Look at what he says in Pasuk Bet, Oti Nahag, he led me. Look in Pasuk Gimel, again, I put it all in yellow here just to make it very clear. He goes out against me. Pasuk Hey, Bana Alai Vayakaf Rosh Utlaa. He built against me and he surrounded me with poison and hardship. Who, who is this Gever's enemy? He's describing this hidden subject who is striking him and leading him in darkness and surrounding him with poison and hardship and breaking his bones and doing all these horrible things to him. Who is this tormentor of the Gever? The tormentor of the Gever, says Rashi, is God. Now he doesn't mention God by name, which is quite striking, but he, over and over and over refers to God in the first verse, Ani hagever ra'a oni beshevet evrato. I am the man who has seen affliction at the rod of his anger. And Rashi says, whose anger is that? That's God's anger. God is the hidden subject here. By being the hidden subject, I think that one of the things that we're sensing is how deeply alienated this Gever feels from God. This individual is so deeply focused on himself, on his own experience of suffering. He becomes self-centered, almost narcissistic in his suffering to the degree that he simply cannot see outside of himself. He is completely focused on himself. By the way, you know, this sounds like I'm being very critical of the Gever, and I don't necessarily intend to be. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm not a psychologist. Perhaps there are some psychologists here in this, um, on this, this uh, Zoom shear, but it seems to me that this is a very natural response to suffering, that a person should focus inward and be able to kind of, you know, close in on their own experience. The, the flip side of this, of course, is that he feels that God is very distant. And this too seems to be a natural kind of response, at least according to halakha, right? What is the first stage of mourning for a person who is following the halachic guidelines of mourning? The first stage of mourning is a stage that we call aninut, right? What is aninut? Aninut is when uh, before a person has buried their loved one, they are not allowed to engage in any sort of mitzvot, in any sort of commandments, so that they don't even make blessings on their food. Now, of course, the, the ostensible reason for this is because they are busy burying their dead. Right? They don't have time. They don't have the, the ability to focus on doing commandments. But what it produces, and I, I believe that Rav Soloveitchik points this out, what it produces is a deep sense of alienation from God. right? And that is, in fact, what a person feels 
when they are experiencing terrible suffering. The first part of that person's experience is a sense of alienation from God. And I think that this is made perhaps most clear in verse 8, where we have here the Gever describing his tefillah, his prayer, which cannot reach God. Look at how he describes it. He says, my, my prayer is blocked. He says, gam ki ezak va'ashavea satam tefillati. Even when I call out, even when I cry and I plead, my prayer is blocked off. But if you look at this verse carefully, you see that there is something that is significantly missing from this verse. And what is that? What is missing from this verse? Any sort of you, any sort of thou. We know that prayer is about the I and the thou. It's about the I who is trying to communicate with God. And yet in verse eight, there is no you. There is only the I. And here I think we see to, to, to an extreme degree how much this suffering individual cannot find God. Now, this leads to, I think, several other kind of um, uh, themes that we have in the Gever's description of his suffering. He describes himself plunged into darkness. He describes himself several times, right? Plunge into darkness. I put it here in blue. He describes himself surrounded on all sides so that he feels almost imprisoned. He cannot emerge from the prison of his own suffering. He is in a deep state of darkness. Of course, we always describe God as light. Hashem Ori and this person who feels very far from God, of course, feels himself in darkness. The other point that I think that we have here throughout this section is he is describing that he, he his paths that he's walking on. Look in, in, in verse 9 in Pasuk Ted. Gadar dirachai begazit. My path has been blocked off by a stone wall, nitivotai iva, my paths are perverted. He can't find his proper path. I think this is reflecting a state of mind. He is plunged into darkness. He feels like he's in prison. Even uh, uh, prayer doesn't allow him to emerge from the prison of his own suffering and his paths are all twisted. And how does he see God, this Gever? Well, first of all, he, he, he barely sees God, right? He talks about God. God is very present, but God is present in a hidden way. He's an adversary. And, and this is probably one of, I think, the most uh, uh, striking moments here. Do you like my... Uh, my pictures here that I brought for you. One of the most striking moments in this uh, initial description is when he describes God in verse 10. Dov orev huli ari bemistarim. God is a, 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 a bear lying in wait for me. A lion who's lying in hidden places 
waiting to pounce on me. This is, a, this is almost a theologically untenable description of God. God is an animal of prey? Now, I mean, if you have any doubt that he's talking about God, Rashi makes it very clear. Dov orev hu li hakadosh barahu nepach li ledov orev. Just so that you have no doubts, I brought for you this Rashi. This person feels that God is a predator. God's, um, uh, 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 you know, punitive torment of him is arbitrary. Punitive is the wrong word. God is tor tormenting him in an arbitrary manner. He was the wrong guy who walked in the, you know, the wrong place at the wrong time, and God pounced on him. This is a theologically untenable description. And all of this, the darkness, the inability to find his path, God pouncing on him for no real comprehensible reason, all of this leads this Gever to one, I think, really terrible conclusion. Look at what he says in verses 17 and 18. Nashiti tova, my soul rejected peace. I forgot that there was good in the world. I forgot about good. Va Omar, and I said, Avad nitzchi v'tochalti mehashem. I said, I have lost strength. I have lost my hope in God. Now, there's two things I think that we have to say about these, these uh, psukim, these kind of, uh, his, his conclusion that he reaches in these psukim, two things. First of all, when I envision this um, gever at this point in the story, I see him lying on the floor with his covers pulled over his head, basically saying, it's over, right? I'm done. There's no shalom. There's no tov, there's no strength, there's no good, there's no peace, there's no tranquility, there's no hope for a future. He has completely collapsed. But the other point, the one that I think is perhaps even more striking, is that in verse 18, for the first time in the chapter, he mentions God by name. And as soon as he mentions God by name, this begins to turn around the story, to turn around the trajectory of the story. And he begins to remember God. And he begins his theological reflections. He begins to think about God. And this leads us to part two of the chapter. The minute he says God's name, things begin to turn around. The theological reflections that we have in verses 21 through 39 are also structured, okay? The first part of these theological reflections, he reflects upon God's ways. And he says, God is a God of chesed and rachamim, a God of loyalty, a God of compassion. In the third part of these reflections, he says it again. He thinks deeply. He says, God's ways are good. God is a God of loyalty. God is a God of compassion. This is what surrounds the middle. And this middle, this is the middle of the middle of the middle, right? 
This section, the middle of these theological reflections are the middle of the middle section of the middle chapter, right? I hope you followed that, right? Because that's gonna be, of course, the most important, the deepest moment in the book, the, 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 the moment that I think really reflects the deepest resources that humans have to contend with suffering. Okay, so let's see what we're looking at. This first section, this first section begins, Zot Ashiv Elibi Alkain Ochil. This I will think about, and therefore I will have hope. Don't forget, just three verses ago, he said, I have no hope. And now he says, no, no, no. I will think about the following, and I will have hope. What is he thinking about? He is thinking about God's ways. Chastei Hashem, ki lo tamnu, ki lo chalu rachamav. He's thinking, God is defined by chesed. God is defined by rachamim. God is defined by compassion, by loving kindness, by loyalty. They renew themselves every morning, even if today I find myself in the throes of suffering, alienated from God, I, I, I believe that God will renew that uh, the, the, his, his goodness, his kindness tomorrow morning because the goodness and the kindness, that, that is what defines God. So here we have a section in which the word lehochil appears three times. This is the same person that said, I lost my hope in God. Avad tochal Hashem, and now he comes back and says, I have regained my hope in God. Section three. Section three goes back to these theological reflections and says, God will not reject us forever because he is filled with rachamim and chesed with compassion and loving kindness. So what surrounds the middle section are God's ways, God's goodness. What do we have exactly at the middle of Migilat Echa? I brought for you the cover of my book because the most frequently asked question since my book came out a month ago is, why do I have Starry Night? on the cover of my book. And so I'm gonna uh, maybe you know uh, uh, use the picture um, as a prop uh, to explain what I think um, I'm trying to get the picture to depict, which is that all of Echa describes the terrible storms that batter human beings from all sides. But what we have in the eye of the storm what we have directly at the center of the human being is the ability to find peace, the ability to find tranquility, the ability to find God, the ability to find faith in God. But that's not what we find at the deepest, most central place in Echa. You know what we find at the most central place in Echa? We don't find God at all. We find humans, right? Look in Pasuk of Zion. Tov la gever ki sa'ol benu rav yeshev badad v'yidom ki natal alav. It is good for a human to bear a burden in his youth. He should sit alone and be silent 
when he experiences this. Now, I think there, I'm going to make three points about this central moment in the book. The first point is that at the center center, we find humans. This human is buffered by his faith in God, which appears all around him in this section. But at the middle of this book, what we find is a human being who has found Tov. Now, I think that that itself is extremely unlikely. It's extremely surprising. I want, I want you to note that the three tets in a row, right? The letter tet appears three times in a row. It uses the same word. This is extremely rare in the chapter. Most of the time, the three letters use different words, right? The, the, the poet is varying his words. Every time the letter tet opens the pasuk, it begins with the word tov. Tov, tov, tov. There is good at the center of this book, and it is very surprising. It's very surprising because this is a book about a great deal of bad that is going on around us. But when we dig down deep inside, we find that life can be good, right? We find that thing, we can find the good, the meaningful, the, the, the good that, that is, is, is deep in the hidden resources of every human being. Echa doesn't tell us how to do this. It doesn't tell us what is good. It just tells us that that's what we are looking for. That's what human beings want to find deep at the center of their being. They want to find the ability to live in a good world, to find what is good in the world that they live. And the other point that I want to make is with regard to the words Yeshev Badad, he should sit alone. The word Badad appears twice in the book and it is very prominently featured. The first time that it appears, it is the third word of the book, Echa Yashva Vadad Ha'ir Rabati Am. How has this city sat lonely? It's not a good thing. When we open the book, we open with the loneliness of the city. It's a poignant loneliness. It's a painful loneliness. It's a, you know, it's not a loneliness that is desirable, right? And yet, when we look at the, at the second place where the word Badad appears, it appears at the very center of the book. And it appears as part of the advice that the book gives to the suffering individual. Yeshev Badad, you should sit alone. You should use this opportunity of difficulties to sit alone, to introspect. Suffering produces introspection. Introspection produces a purposeful and meaningful life. And so the badad, the loneliness of the beginning of the book transforms into something constructive exactly at the book's center. How do we find Tov? We find Tov by combating maybe the external difficulties of suffering, but embracing the opportunity that suffering gives people to introspect and to and to and to you know sort of sit quietly and think about how life can be meaningful 
even though life as it presents itself is often so difficult. So these are some of the things that we see at the center. Maybe we'll just take you know a, a, a few minutes. By the way, one of the reasons that I think that uh, the word badad is such a striking word for me now that I'm you know learning and 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 thinking about the Megillah after a year and a half of experiencing this you know difficult pandemic, the word badad, which means alone, was the same word that was used for quarantine here in Israel right? Quarantine was be dude, right? And of course, quarantine was a very, quarantining was a very difficult experience for many people. It was a very painful and lonely experience. And I think that, it, you know, that, that the, the, the Megillah itself, I mean, it's sort of striking that it uses this particular word in light of some of the experiences that many people have had. Uh, on the one hand, there is a, 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 a kind of a horror of the loneliness that is described in Echa Perak Aleph. And yet in the third chapter of Echa, when we are buffered by the knowledge of God's goodness, we also recognize that loneliness and the suffering presents an opportunity for people to dig deeper into, uh, into their, their own lives. And I think that that's something that, you know, Echa doesn't spell out exactly what our conclusions should be, but it does offer us hope that at the center of our experience, we can perhaps turn our experiences into something that can be constructive. Okay, let's look at, um, uh, okay, so these are, this is uh, just, okay. So let's look at the, um, the end of, um, of this chapter. The end of this chapter is the Gever returns to describe his suffering. I'm just gonna say, um, you know, a couple brief things here. One is that when the Gever does return to describe his suffering, he is a changed person. He's a changed person because he is no longer self-centered. He opens with the words, Nach ad Hashem. He no longer speaks as an I, but rather he speaks as part of a we. And he uses his own experience to rally the people together in order to engage in a productive relationship with God. Okay, because my time is running out, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I just really want to take you to this final section of the book in which the Gever returns to describe his own suffering. And he does so using some of the some similar images that we had in the beginning of the story. But this is a changed Gever. He describes how he is thrown into a pit. He describes how he is trapped on all sides. He describes the feeling that water is rising in the pit and that he feels that he has uh, gotten to the end of his life. And then look at what happens here. In verse 55 in Pasuk Nunhe, he says as follows, Karati Shimcha Hashem, Mibor Tachtiot. I called on your name, God, when I was in the depth of despair. That's exactly what happened. 
in verse 18, as soon as he called on God's name, his entire experience turned around. And in, 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 in Pasuk Nun Zion, in verse 57, he turns to God and he says, Karavta biyom ekraeka, you were near on the day that I called you. Amarta al tira, you said, do not be afraid. Now, this is a very striking ending because in the beginning, the sufferer suffered alone. And at the end, the sufferer has regained his community. And perhaps more significantly, he has regained his relationship with God. In this third section, he mentions God by name seven times. He turns to God directly in second person 20 times. He describes God's closeness and perhaps most significant of all, he quotes God speaking. Now, one of the things that is missing throughout the book of Echa is God speaking. In, and chapter three is no exception. We have no verse in chapter three that starts out saying, Vayomer Hashem el hagever al tira ani itcha. Right? We have no, no pasuk in which God speaks to the gever and says, do not be afraid. And yet this gever in verse 57 cites God saying, al tira. When did God say this? Where did God say this? Of course, the answer is that the Gever heard God's speech from within himself. Nothing fundamental has changed external to the Gever. The Gever is still in the throes of suffering. The Gever is still in the throes of loneliness, but he has found and reacquired his faith in God. And he has found the ability to talk to God and to hear God's words deep within himself. And I'll conclude by saying one final point, and that is that if this chapter opened with the word ani, which focused us on this Geber's self-absorbed grappling with his own suffering, the chapter ends with the word Hashem, with the word God. And so if we have to kind of, you know, sum up the chapter and what this chapter is about, this is the chapter of theological grappling. This is the chapter in which the Gever moves from this self-absorbed experience of suffering to a journey in which the Gever finds God. And on the way, the Gever finds himself and he finds his relationship with his people. He finds his relationship with the world. He reacquires his relationship with God and he finds good. He finds good in the world. He finds good in himself. And he even finds good in his most difficult experiences. Okay, so I'm going to uh, turn off the PowerPoint um, and I'll look at some of the chats. <clears throat> I'll see uh, you know, what, uh, you know what, what some of the questions are. Um, what does this mean when we consider that the chapters are of Christian origin? That's a good question that David asked. Um, while it's true that the chapters are formally divided by the Christians, 
in the book of Echa, that's immaterial because the acrostic alphabetic structure already divides the chapters for us. And so we don't need the Christians to divide the chapters. So these chapters are already kind of self-contained without the Christians. And so the division of chapters is extremely meaningful here. Oh, and that's exactly what Ruth Langer said. So I should have read the second comment before uh, I answered. Okay, Chaya said, in the case of Echa, the chapters are clearly distinct. Okay. There you go. Everyone said it. Okay. Suri says you can include verse. Uh, oh, so I, this is a, a so I got some direct uh, messages. Um, you can include verse four in the references to me, right? As he says, Bila bisari ori. That is absolutely true. Uh, that the Suri's comment is absolutely true. Um, you know, I was just pointing out the words that were independent you know, self-references, uh, but many of the verbs and many of the words contain the hidden I as well. Absolutely. It's filled with I, I, I throughout that first section. Um, okay. Um, uh, let's see. Comment from Yael on Facebook. I wonder if the Eitz Chaim verse in Tefillah is a tikkun for verse eight. Um, you know, I think that Tefillah in, in Tanakh is generally accessible, but this isn't the only place in the, in the Tanakh that tefillah is difficult to obtain. So I would say that there's always a balance, right? There, there are uh, many verses that describe tefillah as being something which is extremely important and accessible, but we also have places where God says, I'm not accepting tefillah right now, right? Tefillah is not available to you at all times. Sometimes God hides his face and does not accept uh, tefillah. Okay, um, uh, so someone, I, I don't have a full name here, S says, I think I heard a passing reference to Rashi saying that the Gever is God himself lamenting. But if it indeed is God lamenting, why does the Gever feel alienated, separated from its own being? It's a really interesting comment. I'll, I'll explain why I think it's a really interesting comment. Um, you know, nowhere in Megillat Echa, as I mentioned, does God speak. And, and the, the simple meaning of that chapter is not in by any stretch of the imagination that the Gever is God, not by any stretch of the imagination, but in rabbinic commentary, there is a very uh, concerted effort that is made to show God mourning, to show God uh, lamenting alongside Israel. And it's an extremely comforting image. It's not found in the Megillah, but it is very, very much woven within Echa Rabbah, within the Midrash on the Megillah. And one of the reasons I think is because it's missing for us, God's presence, God's pain, God's empathy. Instead, we have a great deal of adversarial behavior on the part of God in the Megillah. And so this is kind of an attempt to correct it. So, you know, if that kind of Midrash that identifies the giver as God, if it, you know, if it does exist, I wouldn't be surprised. I'm not familiar with it, but I wouldn't be surprised. And that's because there is an attempt to show God as the primary suffer, sufferer in the Megillah. 
Okay, so Seema says, it's so amazing that Tov is used over and over in, in this introspection, when at a quick glance, it looks like the word ra doesn't appear at all in Echa, even when it's filled with so much negativity. It's a wonderful comment. Absolutely, yes. And there is no ra in Megillah Echa. I think it's missing. And it's not because the Megillah is not showing a lot of ra, right? Perhaps it's because they really want to emphasize the tov, by the way, the word tov, it appears seven times in the Megillah. We know that any multiples of seven make it a key word, right? But three times in the middle, so it's already important, right? Whether or not it appeared another four times or not, it would still be important. It's very, very uh, much a focus of the center part, central part of the Megillah. Um, Okay, so um, so I think that this is this is it for the substantive uh, comments. Um, oh, Aliza says the demo that is described in chapter three or explaining it as self introspection could it also be a decision to stop thinking about the theological question because there is no answer. That's also an I think that's an excellent comment. Um, in other words, you know the demama uh, that we have yidom, uh, which is you know the falling silent. Uh, we have it also with Aaron, right? You know, after the death of his two sons. And so perhaps Yeshev Badad V'yidom is just, you know, stop asking questions and just kind of embrace the situation. But, you know, there is introspection going on here, uh, or even if not introspection, there is a certain amount of grappling with God's ways, Right, it's, it, 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 it is a kind of an emuna pshuta, which I think very much uh, uh, coheres with uh, Aliza's suggestion. Okay, I will just say one last thing. I think I did answer uh, all the questions that are on here. Uh, I, I will just say for those of you who would like to comment or ask questions but aren't comfortable doing it publicly, uh, I did put up my email, yaelziegler uh, at gmail.com. It's very easy. Uh, so if anybody wants to communicate with me uh, privately, that's, that's that would be also welcome. And uh, you know, I wish everybody uh, a good and meaningful fast. And uh, uh, everybody that needs a refuah shlema should have a refuah shlema. Yeshuot v'nechamot to Am Yisrael. And maybe next year we'll learn together in Yerushalayim. So uh, wish you wishing everybody well. Thank you so much, Dr. Ziegler. Uh, we have to uh, end promptly because we have another class uh, happening right now. So I'm not going to do the outro, but if you are uh, registered for uh, the 4 p.m. class, we would love to uh, see you then. Thank you. Lehitraot.